0: The top five asset managers control $30 trillion of wealth. When Bitcoin starts absorbing their investment and it becomes a a separate asset class to them, that's the starting point. And then you'll start to see it swallow bonds. It becomes a a store of value and it's anti-inflationary, right? So as the dollar becomes worth less and less, Bitcoin becomes worth more and more. It's a better hedge
1: this is the blue collar bitcoin podcast a show where average joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century we talk bitcoin we talk finance and we talk shit Howdy, plebs, and thanks for dedicating part of your day to chilling with us here on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, chat with Mr. James Lavish. He's a CFA and former hedge fund manager with decades of experience in institutional investing, as well as an impressive grasp of macroecon. In this hour, we discuss why James's hockey career was cut short, Japanese yield curve control, what's going on with the yen, and what it could all mean globally possible central bank tactics moving forward, downside market protection in the Fed put, the economic predicament of the middle and lower class, and a bulldog named arbitrage. As a heads up, this episode gets fairly technical. The good news is James writes a weekly newsletter called The Informationist, where he works to simplify complex financial jargon. Down in the show notes are linked several of James's pieces that help fill in specific topics we discuss in this episode. If something is going over your head, pause the episode, take five minutes, and read up on the topic at hand. I can say from my own learning journey that one of the key ways podcasts have been most helpful is by highlighting what I don't understand, prompting me to go learn further on my own. You can follow James on Twitter at JamesLavish, and you can follow us on Twitter at Blue BTC. If you are a regular listener and you're enjoying the show, do us a solid by subscribing or leaving us a review on Apple. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is powered by Coinkite, makers of the best signing device in existence, the Cold Card. Check out all Coinkite products at Coinkite.com and be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off purchases. The new Cold Card Mark IV is Bitcoin only, aka shitcoin repellent. It has dual secure element, verifiable source code, and true air gapping. The Cold Card is easy to use, but not too easy to use. Here's what I mean. When you self-custody the most pristine asset on planet Earth, you need to know the basics of what the flip you're actually doing. Anyone and everyone can learn to use a cold card, and although this process is simple, it does encourage users to gain a grasp of what they are actually securing and how it's actually secured. This understanding is absolutely necessary if you want your storage setup to stand the test of time. For assistance with cold card setup, we have our favorite cold card guides linked down in the show notes. CoinCat makes a plethora of other badass products, including the Block Clock, the Open Diamond, and more. We'll zero in on just one more here, that being the Seed Plate. As career firefighters, we can tell you with conviction that your seed words need to be on metal. There is no better way to do this than with this small, tough, thick steel plate built to store the seed words of a Bitcoin private key. Go check this thing out at seedplate.com. BCB Podcast is also sponsored by Leaden. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin-forward perspective. They are the first-ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof-of-reserves attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. To put this simply, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to BCB much at all, you certainly notice that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and never get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and your specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Leaden bitcoin back loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Leaden Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Leaden dollar loans and their trading service, if available. You can look into Leaden's well-architected menu of services at Leaden.io. That's L-E-D-N.io. And visit startledenio slash bluecollarbitcoin and sign up to get $10 USDC for creating and funding an account. Alright, I'm going to shut up and clear the stage for Mr. James Lavish. Enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. James Lavish, welcome on BCB.
0: (laughs) Thank you for having me, fellas. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here.
1: We finally made it happen. We presumptuously changed times on you like on 17 different occasions. Yeah. (laughs) But we're here. I'm here. I have my beer. I've got my thinking slippers on. Um, Screaming kids are tucked in tight, ready to talk some macro. Awesome. My bulldog
0: is over there chewing a bone. So uh, hopefully she doesn't get too loud. We'll find out.
1: She's trained to bark when she hears the word Bitcoin. So let's, try
2: <laughs> so, uh, let's dig into your background, James. You, you, uh, you work for a hedge fund. Uh, tell us about, just tell our audience what that entails. What does that mean? Besides cocaine hookers and you know, throwing midgets at targets, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing.
0: First of all, I, I'm not that old. That's the 80s. So oh, um, Missed the good that- times, huh? Yeah, I miss the good times. Um, well, it really you know, honestly, it really depends. It depends on the kind of hedge fund that you're in, right? Because you could have some well, that's the kind I want to be in. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to be a lot older, you need to live in the eighties. So um yeah, that when I got in, uh it was it was still it was still the the kind of heyday of of Wall Street um back in the early to mid nineties. And I mean, to, to tell you that my first job uh in in and finance was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So, if you can imagine, if you've ever seen the movie Wall Street, where they run around, there's papers flying everywhere, and people are screaming back and forth. There's no hand signals. That's they, they can't do that in New York Stock Exchange. But uh, you know, those big crowds and just chaos. That that was that's where I worked. My first job out of college, and so it was kind of baptism by fire. And uh, and I was working for uh, an you know, British investment bank, and a lot of your your listeners have probably heard this story before. For the ones who haven't, uh, I was a hockey player in college, um, and uh, and I was I was headed to the pros. I had had um, been drafted by the Boston Bruins, and Dang. Uh, and I was uh, you know our team was doing extremely well, uh, far better than anybody had had projected to do. Uh, I had, I was playing with some of the best players in the, in the nation, uh, some, some of the best players that have in the history of my school, you know? And so I had the benefit of that and, um, I got hurt senior year. I got, I got hit, on uh, on, on the side, just catching a, a regular pass coming out of the zone and my left skate went into a groove in the ice and I got hit and that was it. It was over. So I had to kind of scramble and figure out what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I mean, I tried. I tried to get. Uh, I tried to rehab and go to the NHL. Um, but in truth, I mean, I was uh, like I was. Saying, I was saying I was good, but I needed to be like one hundred and twenty-five percent of what I was right. in college to make it the pros. It's just, and I was operating at maybe seventy or eighty percent, so it's just not going to happen. So, I I I scrambled and tried to figure out what I was going to do. I had no idea so i slept on friends sofas in new york and this is 1993 1994 so there were no jobs in this country like it was it was a quiet time economically and so um it was right before the internet right so one of the big companies that people were talking about was intel and so um you know it was the it was the uh the biomedical boom and uh and biomedical research, that, that, that's the area that was kind of booming at the moment that I got out of school and I, I didn't have any of that knowledge or experience or talent or education. So that was not going to happen. But I was pretty good in math. And so um, I got hired by a British investment bank to trade something called ADR arbitrage, where you take foreign securities and you trade them on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You do an exchange, you put them in a basket, you uh, trade uh, you know you, you, you swap the currency and you put on a stamp tax, and you can sell it in, on the floor of the New York stock exchange and so but we didn't have spreadsheets, we were just using calculators. so if you could do it quickly, then you got the trade and that was the, that was the deal so um, that was that was my first taste, and from that, because I was doing that. Uh, I started talking to some people who were in hedge funds, and there was a hedge fund in New York that was looking for somebody to trade merger arbitrage. And it's the same sort of thing where you've got a two-sided trade where you're buying the company that's going to get bought by another company, and you're you're just buying the spread. so you're if it if it's a cash deal, you're just buying the underlying that that security. If it's a stock deal, you're buying one security, you're shorting the other in the right ratio. And then you're you're annualizing that return to to um, make your your spread and and make the return for your portfolio, but uh, so that's kind of that's kind of like that's just where I started in in arbitrage.
1: <laughs> there he is. Or it's the, is. it's arbitrage. Right. That's the word, Josh. It's not Bitcoin. Yeah. She gets frisky when she hears the word arbitrage.
0: Yeah, you got it. Come on, baby. Where's your bone? Okay. <laughs> Her name is Arbitrage, right? yeah her name's Ar- no um, her name's Vesper. her name's Vesper. she's a bond girl. So um, gotcha. yeah. so um, that's that's kind of where you know that's where I got my my chops on the floor of the stock exchange um, and then going into the merger arbitrage. So you're asking what does a mer- what what does a hedge fund manager do? and that, I mean that that could be anything because hedge funds don't really have they don't have strict mandates on what they can invest in. Right. So back in the day, back in the nineties and early two thousands, hedge funds were popping up everywhere and doing anything. I mean, they were they were playing poker in, in uh in Las Vegas. They were, you know, doing horse races. They were they were there was one I heard was doing like lottery tickets. That's way out there. So you basically you could do anything, right? So but the typical traditional hedge fund, what the professional institutional hedge funds what they were doing is they were trying to um, they had the ability and this is this is the key this is why they're so different from regular investment funds is because they could trade anything they could invest in anything well they could they could short stocks they could buy swaps they could buy cdss they could buy real estate they could they could diversify their portfolios in ways that traditional institutional money managers couldn't can't do, right. can't do. Um, so if you're, so what they would, what the hedge funds I was working in, what we were trying to do is just, we were trying to isolate our alpha, meaning our, our, our over our performance that was above and beyond the regular market. So your beta is the market and your alpha is what you can generate above that. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and the way you do that is you hedge out your beta. So, if you're doing something like merger arbitrage, you don't care where the stock market goes. It could go up or down. it doesn't matter. All that matters is that 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 spread closes. that merger closes and the deal closes, and you collect that spread that you created. That's all you care about. It gets more complicated with the math and dividends and you know there, there's optionality that's embedded in some of these things with collars. But the bottom yeah. line is you don't care where the market goes. you just want to capture your spread so your your institutional hedge fund that's what they're doing they're trying to isolate alpha and they're doing it in all kinds of different ways you can do convertible arbitrage they could do distressed debt investing they could do uh long short investing in pairs trades where they buy one bank and sell another bank or they buy one basket of technologies companies and sell another basket of technology companies but they can use any instrument to their advantage to do that. They can use options. They can we used options as insurance contracts, you know. So I would imagine that these are the places that you want to end up getting
2: to if you're somebody on the forefront of investing, like you the handcuffs are off. You get to do, you know, everything within the realm of legality legality yeah. to make to make money. Even to uh, you know, buy Robin Hood and front run retail traders like Melbourne Capital <laughs> does.
0: <laughs> no comment. So what? <laughs> so so, and that's and that's really what what it comes down to is that you you're the handcuffs are off and you could do whatever you wanted. And these guys are so smart; like they were doing things. I learned so much in the, that first ten years of my career. I was it was overwhelming, fireman drinking from a fire hose every single day. It was it was nuts. So what was it like working in a hedge fund? Well, when you're a, you're an analyst or a trader. You're waking up super early. You're reading whatever you can on the train, on the way to work, or you're listening to what you can on in your car on the way to work, whatever you whatever you can do. And then you get set sit down at your desk and you pour through as much information as you possibly can because you know that you're about to step into battle for the day. Cause there mm-hmm. typically hedge funds have a pretty high turnover in their investments, right? So you're trading around positions constantly and you're always looking for that spread that 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 little bit of edge that you can get in order to uh outperform so it, you know if you're if you're a young person you're working your tail off and you're in the office super early you don't get lunch you're all the way through you're at your desk there's like long panels of screens and you have your spot and you're all like on top of each other, talking to each other, over your screens, next to each other, c- comparing information, sharing information, listening to the same calls, talking to different traders on the street, and trying to work together to do whatever you're doing. And I mean, quite honestly, it was it, what was so easy about it, it, it was a pretty easy transition to go from the hockey culture, that 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 mentality of of playing in a game that's super fast paced that You know, you're going at at high, um, high energy for short periods of time. You step back, you take a breather, you go back in for, you know, another shift, but you're, you're basically reading, reacting and adjusting constantly. And so that high pace, that high pressure, you've got people watching you, you know, you've got your team, you're trying and you're all working together. That's kind of what it felt like back then on those floors. So you
2: need to start. Bumping your chest and talking about feeding the geese right now because that's you sound like Matthew McConaughey right at the moment when he meets uh DiCaprio telling him all about how many times he need to feed the geese every day to stay going. <laughs> high energy, high intensity. It sounds sounds crazy though, it really
0: does. It was pretty it, it could be crazy. So when I was trading Arb, um, you know, we didn't have I didn't really have much of a break because we At the time, I was, tra- I, was, I was working with a hedge fund down in Dallas, and we had grown really quickly. And so we didn't have a European desk yet, right? So w- any, anything we were doing, I was the trader. I, it was up to me to trade those spreads, no matter what time of night they were trading, what time of day. So we'd have the New York Stock Exchange opening. So I'd be there at maybe six o'clock in the morning seven o'clock in the morning if I was late and just trade all the way through because it was it was Dallas so we're already an hour behind New York right so and then the stock market would close the next opening a few hours later was New Zealand and then a few hours after that it was Australia and then a few hours after that it was Europe and so I had a Blackberry back then and it was just it was always buzzing always ringing it was nonstop. so I mean, it's a, It can be a psychotic kind of lifestyle, and you, you know, you you read about these guys who are who are in these hedge funds, and you see them talking, and you think, "God, that guy has so much energy." Well, this is what they're doing all day, every day, and so yeah. that's the kind of it can be like that if you're in one of those types of hedge fund, and then the other, the whole other end of the spectrum is like private equity, where it's super slow super deliberate, super thoughtful, long, long, long tail investing, a lot of conversations, a lot of phone calls, long due diligence processes, reading through research and information, getting information from companies and projecting what you think you can do to so much slower pace. So, and that's kind of where my my career kind of went down that path, so I kind of ended the the hedge fund uh, that I that I was just at. I ended that part with much 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 slower long term investment and and not trading so much. And so that's kind of that's kind of where I left that world recently. And I, I'm I'm unsure exactly what I'm going to do right now, but that's that was my jumping off point. So,
1: so James where and when does Bitcoin enter your picture? And Mm. how do you feel your background either predisposed you to or inhibited you from understanding the Bitcoin use case? Oh, man.
0: That's a great question. It's the worst trade I've ever made in my life, and that's the one I didn't do, right? So, um, you know, I it was back in... I had 2018 and, and I had some discretionary capital and I, your listeners have heard me say this before, but um, some of them, but <laughs> for the benefit of those who haven't, don't feel bad. I've made the worst trade in the world too. Um, so uh, I had some discretionary capital. I want to go out on the risk curve. I want to do something just a little bit riskier. You know, I had my real estate. I had my, my stock portfolio. I had private equity. I had some venture capital. I was thinking, I want to do something just a little bit different. And I heard about this Bitcoin thing. And so I started asking people about it. And when you're an institutional investor, and at the time I was at a hedge fund, um, you, you do what institutional investors do. You go ask the experts on the street. So, well, Bitcoin's technology. So I went and asked the technology analyst on the street. I was like, what do, you guys, what, what do you guys think about this Bitcoin thing? Like, what is this? And wh- I mean, is it, is it real? And they're like, no, it's not real. It's a Ponzi. It's just a scam. There's nothing to it. There's no, there's no underlying fundamental basis for it. It's, it's, it's basically just a Ponzi scheme and just avoid it at all costs. I was like, Ooh, okay, thank you so much for warding me off from buying it at $3,000.
2: Yeah, that guy probably just bought it at seventeen grand and watched it
0: go to three thousand and was pissed. Yeah, probably probably what happened. Right. Then. So, anyways, but that wasn't just him. It was it was a, it was a number of them. Right. So, um, yeah. So I didn't do it. I I, uh, I decided not to. I walked away. And okay, so I don't look at it again for a long time. I see the price jumping around, and you know, I just don't think about it. And then the pandemic hits, and. Uh, and I'm unwinding from the from the position I'm in now, and I'm talking to my son, and he's in college, and he's he's talking to a bunch of his friends. He's like, "Dad, you've got to look at this crypto thing again. You've got to give it another shot, and I think you'd really be interested in it. And in particular, I think you'd be interested in the Ethereum and uh, and Solana and Cardano. And that was fine, you know. He, he's a 20 year old." Um, kid, really smart. And his friends are uh, all up in the, in the analyzing the stuff and they're, they're young. And so, um, so I bought a little bit of Ethereum and then I started doing some research for myself this time. And this time I, I got onto Twitter, I got onto blogs, I started reading newsletters. I started following people who I could tell I could respect quickly. I started following people like Luke Groman and Lynn Alden and Greg Foss and you know Larry Lapard. And I started and listening to uh, shows like Mark Moss's show and uh you know BTC Sessions and I mean there's just so many, you know, Breed Love. I was I was listening to all of them. And I was I was watching this show and, and it started to come together, you know. Of course, when when you start doing research in, in Bitcoin you're going to come across Michael Saylor. It's just natural. (laughs) He's the black hole. So I watched a a bunch of his videos and I was like, wow, this guy, I mean, of course he's, he's insanely intelligent and I get it. Um, But this guy is put, he's, he's basically wagering his, his whole legacy on this thing. So of course he's got to talk about it this way. So, I mean, he's, he's an incredible ambassador for like don't get me wrong but it, for me it was like okay i need a little bit more i just need to understand it just a little bit more because i get the whole theory behind it but how is it really going to fit into our system and so i was sitting there watching um i was watching pomp um and one of his uh one of his uh podcasts and he had this guy jeff booth on and I I didn't really know Jeff. I didn't I I hadn't read his book. I didn't know who he was, and and uh, so I sat down and I was watching this video, and I I mean it's an hour long video, or whatever, and I watched it kind of half um half on the on the bed and halfway to the desk. I'm like <laughs> like watching it on my laptop, and I just can't stop watching it. And I'm like, this is just incredible. So I call my wife in. I'm like. You, you've got to see this. Like this is like, it all came together for me, and I was like, you've got to see. Like this is what I'm talking about. And so she sat down on the edge of bed. We were about to make dinner, and we sat there and watched the whole thing through again. And at the end of it, she looks at me and she's like, "How much do we own? Do we own enough?" (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, so. What clicked for me is Jeff uh, having had te- a technology company and, and having run businesses um, and really truly understanding the dynamics of inflation and de- deflation and talking about how those inflationary and deflationary forces were battling against each other and how naturally technology is deflationary and how the Fed has to, uh, you know, our, our monetary policy has to be inflationary. In order to pay off past debts and how they're kind of clashing and that at some point they're going to collide and things are going to break and so and the answer to all of it is a monetary system that allows for deflation and that's bitcoin i was like okay i got it click i i've got it and since that moment um I've basically just been all in. You guys have seen me on Twitter. I, I I understand it. I get it. And I've been doing more research and going further down the rabbit hole and further understanding how Bitcoin can really help and solve so many of the monetary issues that we have today. And that was a long answer to your question, but I hope that that, that no, makes No, it's sense. great.
1: <laughs> well, one thread I yeah. want to pull on there is the word deflation, because I think one mm-hmm. thing we've noticed is that... Uh, the context is sort of key when people hear the word, they're immediately thinking deleveraging recession, depression, credit crunch, Mm -hmm. sort of deflationary event. You're using that word a little different than that in, in, in characterizing it and framing it around a currency or a monetary technology. Can you fill in what you mean when you use the word deflationary in that sense? Yeah.
0: I mean, um, you know, I can't speak for Jeff because he's, he's far more intelligent than me, but, um, you know the, the the premise is that look if you look around the technology that we have even in your lifetime you know you've seen technology uh, rapidly rapidly uh, um, evolve and you get more and more and more technology for less and less and less money so it it, it seems to reason that with all of this technology and all of the the, the gains that we've gotten in productivity from technology. We should have to work less for the same amount of output that we are, that we are generating, right? So mm-hmm. it, 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 we can go into the Michael Saylor energy, uh, you know, work energy um, transition. But the, the basic point is that, look, we, we should be seeing prices of everything come down, right? But yep. we're not. And we're not because we have fed induced inflationary environment because of monetary manipulation, and so the but it, in a natural state, we should see prices come down for everything because it's easier to produce everything it's easier to right. create things it's, and you have more you have more power and leverage with all of the technology I think. So, I, I- a good example of that
2: would be um everyone's heard of Malthus, the philosopher from the eighteen hundreds who thought there can't be more than I forget the arbitrary number, but it was like one hundred and twenty million people or some number similar to that for the entire earth because his calculation depended on the fact that farming could only support x number of people with the technology they had in say eighteen fifty but he didn't what he didn't anticipate was, you know we're going to get ten times the amount of food out of the same acreage because our technology had improved. and that's just yeah. like a I mean, now we've got six, seven billion people with room for probably a hell of a lot more just because exactly. the technology of farming has gotten so much more, just so much more efficient.
0: Yeah, it's a great example.
1: It, it is an insanely important and profound idea. Exponential technological advancement should get us more for less, but we have yeah. a monetary base layer and we're working off of monetary systems that inhibit this from happening, which is That's a right. cry shame for humanity, particularly the disenfranchised. You know? It's like
2: a horse and buggy financial system in a you know, flying car future. These two yeah. things are not going to
0: happen. Exactly. Probably not the flying
2: they, cars either, honestly.
0: Exactly. And the, and the hard part is you know, um, the people who are hurt by inflation are the ones who typically understand it the least.
1: Mm,
0: 100%. We're not educated on this stuff. You know, We're, our system is not set up to make us smart on this. And, you know, you could say that it's, it's systematic, it's, it's, um, it's purposeful, it's, uh, you know, they want to keep us dumb or whatever you want to say. But the reality to me is that just, just look to the, to the incentives. Like, what incentive does anybody have to make you smarter on your car loan, you know? They know what levers they have to pull and they want to be able to maximize their leverage on those levers, and they don't want you to know what you're doing, you know. So, the last thing a car salesman's going to do is teach you exactly what levers he's going to pull. And there's no there, but there's no there's no class in in uh, high school that deals with. All of the things that we 're talking about and monetary policy and how it impacts people and how it impacts you, and what mm-hmm. the best and and the best practices for personal finance and personal investment, because what people don 't realize is that if they don't have investments in an inflationary world, if they don't own assets, then they're losing the game they're getting behind you know so yeah i mean yep.
1: it's it's there's so many prongs to this. Like, A, the, the wealthy are going to tend to be the most nimble to begin with. They're going to have access to resources and the ability to spin move out of precarious environments. Asset price inflation, which you've just hinted on, right? The asset holders are going to suffer the least in a, in a debasement inflationary environment. And this is all happening at a time where wealth inequality is magnified significantly. You know, I, I recently read Lynn Alden's piece from a while back on escalating wealth inequality and all the, you know, she goes into a lot of factors with that, uh, including reserve currency fiats, right? With, with yeah. that whole dynamic, Triffin dilemma. So you're dealing with very high wealth inequality and significant debasement. And those two things, it really is fuse meeting the dynamite there for the middle and lower class. I mean, that is 100% a lot of what we're up to here, right? Is we're trying to, to, to sound the alarm bells
0: exactly and that that's one of the things that when uh that when I was in college it's one of the things that we studied is the uh socioeconomic impact uh to Latin American countries on the separation of wealth and that's exactly what we're talking about they, they it ended up eating away their middle they they have no middle class and guess what we're we we're we're losing our middle class so rapidly that it's hard to even put your finger on whether or not we have one anymore. You know, yeah. you know
2: I was listening to Preston and Sven, uh, the Northman trader talk today, yeah. and I can't remember which one said this, but it was along the lines of the Fed has maintained that their you know, QE hasn't affected wealth inequality over, over the period of the last 10 years. But it's funny that the second they start pulling the, you know, the trough away from the hogs, all of, all of these assets are shitting the bed by massive right. double, double digits. So you, mm-hmm. it's really hard for them to, have, to put this face on and say, well, we're not the ones causing this wealth inequality, and we take away the punch bowl, and immediately this entire thing turns upside down and starts causing people to have do- double digit losses. Like <laughs> This is a
1: yeah. preposterous thing for them to try to maintain. I think the most interesting dynamic to assess and what's counterintuitive with asset price inflation on a long-term time frame. the biggest impact is the rescue on the downside, right? And, and this is something I read your Fed put informationist yeah. piece, which I want to yeah. get to. We'll let you define the Fed put, right? But when you look at a decades-long time frame, let's just take the last 20 years, and centralized monetary policymakers have signaled that there is a pain point at which they will step in. And by the way, gentlemen, that pain point still exists. I know it's a different dynamic right now because they're up against inflationary pressures, but there is a level at which a deleveraging is inhibited by centralized policymakers. It still exists. So when you zoom out on the long-term, it's almost the limit on the downside that leads to the balloon inflating on the long-term. Right. Um, Elaborate on that, James. Also define the Fed put because it's thrown out in this space a lot. And I think a lot of people don't understand what the hell people are talking Mm, about. Tee off here.
0: Yeah, so first of all, um you I think you're exactly right and one of the, one of the problems is there's no consequences, right? Hmm. So what's the fed put? Well, the fed put really uh, it started way back when um back in 1987 when uh the stock market was crashing and um and uh the fed had had stepped in and said, "Look, we're going to we're going to support assets, so don't worry." Now, back then they didn't really do much, but it was kind of the signal that that's, that's what we're going to do, you know? I mean, you have, you have, and it really started with the Greenspan put. So, but then flash forward and you get to 1998 and um, and I've talked about this before, but in 1998, I was sitting on, uh, on a trading desk and, uh, at, at, a, at a big hedge fund and I get a phone call from, um, from a pretty big hedge fund, a guy I know at another hedge fund. And he was like, hey, do you guys have any... You guys have any exposure to Goldman Sachs? I was like, "What are you talking about?" And we didn't, you know. Um, but he was talking about uh, he was talking about prime brokerage exposure, swaps, and counterparty risk, and all that. So we didn't. So I was, no, we're we're good there. But he said this long term capital management thing is blowing up fast, and I was like, and I had heard people talking about it because being an arbitrage, long term capital management will back up a little bit. Um, Black Scholes uh, is is the option pricing theory. You guys have seen that, right? Well, um, this guy Martin Scholes had started a hedge fund with a, a couple of other geniuses, and it was called Long Term Capital Management. Okay, I have heard and about this. Yeah. they had a billion dollars, and they what they were doing is they were they were taking spreads. They were they were making bets on spreads. Okay, now you and I we talked about this earlier. How you're, you're isolating alpha right? So that's what they were doing. They were isolating alpha. And they were, these guys were legitimate geniuses, right? But the problem is they were isolating alpha, but they were leveraging their trades. So they were taking trades that not one for one or two for one, which if we were levered at our hedge fund, two or three to one was like, wow, we are out there. like We are really pushing this trade. We're levered two or three to one. These guys were levered a hundred to one and that's what we could that's what we could measure so they had a hundred billion dollars of positions on a billion dollars of capital right Jesus Tim. making degen crypto traders look like uh smart yeah. guys here they were they were taking these razor thin spreads and what happened was you had the 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 Russian ruble was devalued right and so they it, it kind of causes this this shudder throughout the system and some of these these interest rate uh, arbitrage the trades they were doing this they, they were doing interest rate swap trades and they started to move out and people got wind that long-term capital management had these huge positions in these trades. They're like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bid on this because long-term may come out of their position and just blow it up. So everybody backed away and these spreads started blowing out and long-term capital management was so overlevered, and they had so many swaps out that they couldn't figure out who had a swap and who had a counterparty to who. And it was, it was a mess. So basically, the Fed stepped in and rescued and The New York Fed stepped in and rescued them, right? So there's your first, your, your, your first kind of like starting point of no consequence for absolute risk idiocy. You know, these guys took on so much risk and they were so arrogant. They were so bombastic that they were like, well, you know, we, we're, we're smarter than you. We know what we're doing. You don't. Well, guess what? You, the whole street was impacted and that's where it started. So back then it wasn't that much money that, that, that took to, it was in the billions, you know, that it took to rescue these guys. But that set the stage for 2008. And so when the housing crisis started, happened, the first thing they did is stepped in. And so that's the Fed put. So what's the Fed put? The Fed put is uh, when, you, when the Fed They press a button. It's not like they. You see that the thing with them printing money. They don't print money. They just press a button and and you know balances change from from the treasury to the Fed. You know and they 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 start they go out into the open market and they start buying treasuries, buying corporate paper. You know, Um, basically just buying up stocks and bonds to shore up the industry. Right. So um, and. By doing that back in 2008, we didn't let the system fail. We we had some really big players that should have failed, not just Lehman. You know, you had Bear Stearns that was that that was bought out, but you had you had a number of very very large banks that should have gone under, and we should have felt the pain back then, and it would have sucked.
1: It would have been awful. It would have been terrible. I think I think a lot of people fail to digest what that would have looked like. It would have been awful. We're getting back to total first principles here of the dysfunction of a system that's excessively built on credit. right? And when when it unwinds, it can get, we've never in our lifetimes ever experienced it because the Fed put has always stepped in, but like you're talking- I'd argue
2: we're watching it happen in crypto right now. I mean, look at what just happened to
1: Celsius
0: and BlockFi and 3Arrow. Three AC. You, Hey, man! You, you if, n- There's no. There's no rescue. There's no Fed put for these guys. So we're it's watching. It's fascinating it to watch, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And, so, and so when people are saying, you know, like it's funny, you see the you see these the, the, uh, the talking heads on Bloomberg and CNBC, and they go out there and say Bitcoin's dragging down the industry. No, Bitcoin's swallowing it, man. Bitcoin is 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 is, is suffering the and then and weathering the blows. Of massive the massive over leverage of these companies. Again, they're doing the same thing crap that traditional finance has done, where they where they uh you know, they they fractionalize their their holdings and their assets and then just lend out and then borrow and lend out and borrow and lend out. Like it is unbelievable how much leverage was in the system. And I don't, I don't know if we've seen I doubt we've seen the bottom yet. You know, on on that problem, I think we're going to have some more blowups. There's contagion that's rippling through the industry, and but to your point, there's no Fed put on 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 crypto and yeah. on Bitcoin. There's just got yep. Yeah, yeah, sorry, which
1: is healthy for markets, man. I mean, healthy is a relative term. Like the ball is rolled so far downhill with the the broader system and the and the. Contagion has the potential to be so systemic. Yeah. Using the word "healthy" is ironic, but as we're as Bitcoiners, we're thinking about a total system reset. Like, what doesn't kill it makes it stronger. Getting clownsmanship rinsed out of markets is a good thing,
0: <laughs> it and
1: it's not allowed in traditional markets. Understandably so. I mean, this is something that we talk about all the time. Like, it's fun to put a clown nose on Jerome Powell, and I don't know the guy, but I doubt he's a complete malevolent moron. Like he is trying to do the best he can on the scaffolding he's perched on, which is insanely precarious.
2: It's interesting though, like we were talking about um, 2008. So Bernanke, he said in 2007, he said the subprime market is contained, and then it blows up the next year. Like, and now we have you know Janet Yellen and we have Powell both saying that you know inflation's transitory. Last year, even as as soon as December of this year they were saying through 2023 average inflation is going to be 1% like they've got right. egg all over their faces at this point and they're, and they're saying the consumer is strong yeah yeah right yeah. like what do we what is your take on these people do you think that they I mean obviously we don't think they're idiots we don't think they're evil but where on the strata of stupid to evil are they
0: they, you know, you have to read between the lines of everything they're saying, right? Because they can't induce a, a panic in the markets by saying, right. Oh, yeah, we're going into a recession. <laughs> Can you imagine what the markets would do if the banks were to be watch? honest? Yeah. You know, they can't be honest. So they've got to say, Look, we're, go- we're, we're, we're going to, to engineer a soft landing, even though they know damn well that there's really no way to engineer a soft landing. You raise rates to the point where the economy tightens. You sell all that QE, the quantitative easing. So you were asking what the Fed put. The quantitative easing is the Fed out there physically buying their own paper, right? Mm-hmm. So, but when they have to get that off their balance sheet and sell it, well, that's going to make what happen? Well, is bond prices, you sell bonds, prices go down and interest rates go up. Right. It's a natural movement. So, for you know, for every. 80 billion dollars of bonds are selling it's moving the the prices up do you read their aggressiveness
2: like the 75 bips they just moved do you read that as like a kind of panic to get themselves in a position where they can cut meaningfully for the for the recession here exactly they're trying
0: yeah it's exactly how i read it i I read it as they've got to get these things up as quickly as they can because they're reactionary right you know in reality let's uh, so let's talk about it so now they've moved up 75 basis points you know the next 75 basis points isn't quite as impactful on a percentage basis of that move right so mm-hmm. they know that and they also know that they are reactionary so everything they do is is behind the ball right so it's it's going to affect you know the the next few months, but it's not going to affect the last two or three months that they're finally reading their gauges on, right? So because they're reactionary, they're just trying to do it as quickly as they can, knowing that it's a slow, it's a slow, the the economy is really slow to react to interest rate you know movements. So now that being said, if you look at what's going on the market, everybody's pretty much calling their bluff. You know the euro dollar futures that that curve has come down a full point in the last week or so. So and that's telling you that next year in 2023 they're going to start lowering rates again according to the predictions of the euro dollar. So you know and you're just what you're watching that curve and you're watching all of the interest rates move along with the CPI. And the GDP and the employment numbers and the PMI numbers and the housing data, like everything that's coming out, is saying, uh uh oh. So you've seen interest rates back off, but there's also another function that there's been a flight to safety to the U.S. dollar. And so when people are buying, when when foreigners are buying U.S. treasuries and buying the dollar, you know treasuries are they go down in price. I mean, the price, the the treasures go up in price and the the yield goes down in, in yield. And then the dollar goes up because of that flight to safety. So you're seeing that as well. And it's all interconnected. You know, you've got, you've got Europe that hasn't raised rates yet. They just had record inflation. They haven't even raised rates. Like, what are you doing? Like you've got to start raising rates. They won't do it. They're still at at, at a negative, way negative real yield, right? So, and then we've talked about what's happening in Japan ad nauseum. It's incredible.
1: The Japan situation right now is crazy because they're doing, they're executing the same tactics that they've been executing for a long time, but the repercussions are different this time. Yeah, in large part because of the Fed's tightening and tapering. Talk to us about that. Yes, you wrote a piece been, on it, and yeah. I heard you yeah, talk about it with Preston yeah. a little bit. What's the what's making this dynamic with Japan's yield curve control more unique, and why the hell is the yen devaluing it at the pace it is?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. And so basically, what you're you're looking at is you're looking at how, first of all, for your, the benefit of your listeners who haven't heard us talk about this, the Bank of Japan has declared that they're going to buy every single ten-year JGB, the Japanese government bond, every single. 10 year JGB to keep that interest rate at 25 basis points, 0.25%. They want to keep it at 0.25%. Okay, so what does that, what is that doing?
1: Well, wait, why? First of all, hold on before we go for it. Why do they want it pegged there? Explain that to our audience.
0: Because they want to, they need to keep their interest rates low in order to get the, keep their economy going. They don't want their economy to dry up, right? So, and they're on this, this low interest rate environment. Uh, you know, and they have a ton of debt.
1: Debt load is insane. It's like two hundred thirty plus percent of GDP. The the public debt. Correct,
0: exactly. And so uh, that's right. And so they they have so much debt. They've got to keep the interest rates low. They've got to keep the economy going. It's it's kind of it's not on life support, but it's changed. Their economy has changed so much, you know. And so um, they're thinking, well, we're a net exporter, so it's it, the the impact to their citizens because of the yen going up. So let's go back to that. So what happens? The as the Bank of Japan buys this debt from foreigners and from investors, well, those investors get yen and they don't want to hold yen knowing that this is going to continue. So they sell the yen and so there has to be an escape valve for all that pressure. And that escape valve is their currency. And so you are seen the yen just skyrocket over the last few months. Now, It's these are not record levels for the yen yet, but the move has been incredible. It's been breathtaking. So that is not a normal move for the last few months. So now the yen is up over 135 uh, to to one dollar, and so the the problem is it's it all has to do with interest rate parity, right? So it if you if you're if you have a choice. As an investor, between buying yield in Japan at twenty-five basis points or buying two and a half, three percent of yield uh, in the U.S. Treasury, well, what are you going to do? Like you're, you're the the, the yeah. world is starving for yield, so you're gonna you're gonna go buy dollars, sell yen, buy dollars, buy U.S. Treasuries. That's just the natural trade, right? That's what you're going to do. So if you if you look at the yen price. It is directly correlated to the spread between the U.S. and Japanese 10-year yields. That spread, as that spread goes up, the yen goes down. So the, Meaning the inverse, meaning the yen goes from 125 to 130 to 135, because it's an inverse quote, but it's going down. As that, yield, as that spread widens, the yen goes down. And right. You get it, so and that's and that's 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 the issue right now is the divergence between the two central banks is so severe that you're seeing all the pressure on the yen, and and that that's and it's it's becoming problematic for them. What was the
2: significance of the divergence from 25 basis points that we saw? And I can you explain what happened there? How what the mechanics of that were? Oh,
0: oh, oh. you mean during the day you see it. Trading. Okay. Yes. So, so basically the bottom line is they, they're, they're buying their bonds in their Bank of Japan Fed window, right? So their, their central bank window um, okay. where you do the exchange during certain hours. Well, they don't trade on the same hours as we do. So what you're seeing is you're seeing US and Europeans trading their, the spreads, okay? Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're doing a swap, Right. So they're shorting the JGBs by selling them and they're buying the yen, thinking that this, this, this peg is going to break. Right. So and they're doing it in a swap. So you're seeing that yield jump from 25 basis points up to 40, 50 basis points. And if you think about it, well, they don't care. They think that it's going to blow out way, way further than that. Right. So these mm-hmm. hedge funds, they they're, they're playing this in, in huge size, right? Is this almost like a bond
2: vigilante type thing that used to exist, but kind of died because central banks will literally steamroll everybody that tries?
0: Uh, no, I think it's just, I think it's just, they're, they're just hedge funds taking very large bets against the Japanese ability to, to stand tall at 135 yen. Hmm. So I mean,
1: here's, here's the crazy thing. And I was thinking about this when I was listening to you and Preston from last week. And, and you guys hinted at this a little bit, but this is like a manifestation when you game this out of this global catch 22 right now. Because when you think about, let's, put, let's start with the United States, then we'll move over to Japan, right? Yep. The US Fed is doing what they're doing because they have to, even from just a narrative standpoint with CPI prints where they're at, right? Right. But it's, it's not in isolation. As the arbiter of the world's reserve currency, monetary policy is not in isolation across the board. So now you're looking at Japan, the yen's going upward at a pace that a lot aren't expecting. It could continue to do so. The yen could devalue at a at a shocking pace if the, if the Fed were to continue and they were to continue to peg at 25 basis points. and you have this scenario where sovereign nation-state global contagion could enter the system, which in a roundabout way could then Force the Fed's hand to ease and go expansionary monetary policy once more. Like, my point here is, you think about it in this contained environment, but I mean, markets are not in isolation. Like, because of the globalization we've experienced over you know the last hundred years, every central bank is influencing the other. These economies can't decouple overnight. We're seeing how reliant we were on the Russian teat. Right, (laughs) everything is connected.
0: Expect contagion. Yeah,
1: countries' narratives are in isolation because that's where the election cycles are, but they impact everything internationally. And it it's yeah. a it is a example of this whole fiat system unwinding, sort of in tandem under the yeah. surface.
0: Yeah, I, and it, you know it, it's like a slow motion wreck, right? Train wreck that you're watching. It could take a long time, guys. I mean, this stuff, there's so much confidence in this paper around the world because it's the only system people know. You know, we live in this bubble that we talk about Bitcoin 247, you know, ad nauseum, and people don't know about this. They still, the vast majority of people still see it as this speculative kind of trade. They think of it like a stock. They don't know that you can buy a partial Bitcoin. You know, like they don't think of it, think of it as money or sound money. They think of it as this, this crazy technology thing that you might, you know, it used to be for drug dealers and and uh you know um child traffickers or something. And so like they they don't understand that it that this is actually this is powerful, like the the most sound money that's ever been created. But going back to what you were saying about if you think that the yen pressure is not going to cause pressure on other countries, you're you're crazy. Like if the yen, if the yen collapses, there's a major problem. So there, you know, they're there and we talked about that, we talked about this on, on Preston's show, is like they don't have a lot of options except to, to stand there and buy All they all they can at twenty five basis points because if they let it go, you've already seen you can see outside their window where it starts to trade really quickly, and these are traders who are trying are trying to maximize their return. They're not looking for liquidity. If someone's looking for liquidity and the Bank of Japan steps away,
1: yeah, God knows where this thing goes. If they don't hold the line, it's going all they're going all the way to the Queen. (laughs)
2: It's <laughs> exactly. We'd we have to assume that you know the guys running the show here aren't idiots, and they're looking at what we what we've just spoken about, which is the escape valve for the Japanese bond is the, the yen, right? So, mm-hmm. what would happen if, say, the the Fed decides to just start buying yen to give it some well, to prop well, that's, it a, up?
0: that's the question, right? So the so well, I mean, Japan's already letting Treasuries U.S. Treasuries roll off their sheets and selling U.S. Treasuries in order to buy shore up the yen themselves. Yeah. yeah There's sell the sell the treasury, get US dollar, sell dollar by yen, right? So right. That's, an e- that's an easy trade for them to do. Well, the question is, okay, so what are what is their what are their choices? Well, they can scrap it. They could scrap the yield curve control, which is what we've been talking about. Your yield curve control for your listeners is when your 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 central bank is buying or selling their own treasuries in order to control the yield of that. Of the curve, which is all the different treasuries plotted on a curve, you know, from the from the, over, the from the one month to the one week, one month, three month, six month, two year, ten year, you know, plot them all on right, a curve. Right. They're trying to manipulate that. So, but um, that's so they could scrap it, walk away. I, I think you you and I or we we've we've talked about that. That would be probably problematic at, at best. They could raise the yield target. Maybe up to fifty basis points or something. I don't know what that would do. It's just kind of temporary. It's, still, it's temporary. It's still perpetuating the problem. Yeah. Uh, they could they could try to target a different maturity, a five year or seven year. I, again, I don't know what that would do. Um, the tenure would still blow out. Um, they could come to an agreement with the U.S., like you're talking about, and and you know maybe maybe the Fed starts buying JGBs and. Yeah, You know, maybe the bank of Japan starts buying treasuries.
2: I mean, I'm just thinking if, if I'm running some kind of a conspiracy with a bunch of buddies and I'm saying, Hey, if we want to keep this charade going, like we're going to have to cooperate here and make this yeah. work. Cause the alternative for them is like, blow this whole system up and everybody loses at least from mostly from their
0: perspective. Like you don't want that to happen. Or Japan, I mean, <laughs> you, the, again, the bank of Japan, these are not, these are not stupid people. They're looking at our that they're looking at our economic numbers too and maybe they're looking at them saying um you know they're playing a little bit of a game of chicken with us and they know that we're going to have to pause at some point late this year or early next year and they're going to make the bet that they can hold out until then you know so so when they do
2: pause um like you said it looks like markets are kind of predicting that they're going to start lowering interest rates at that point how do you see that playing out in markets? Do you think that we kind of trend down or remain in this bear market until that? And that'll be kind of the catalyst to turn this back into potentially a bear market rally or maybe even a fresh,
0: fresh rally. Anybody who says they, they know what's going to happen is. Oh, I just shit. want you to throw darts you and I want to blame you for it so, after, if you're wrong.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Easy to do. Um, no, I think we're just going to grind sideways and lower until it's clear. You know, yeah. so right now we're in that environment, that strange environment where bad news is good news for the market. Which is it's just, you know, it's perverse, right? So you're seeing bad economic data, and that means that it's good for the market because we that the market's making the bet that, well, the Fed's gonna ha- have to hit the pause button on quantitative tightening. So I think it just grinds sideways until we do hit the pause button. I, look, I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, the Fed's gonna, they're gonna raise one more time and then reverse and start lowering rates. I, I don't think it's gonna happen, guys, I don't. I, I would be, you know, one of the things I saw, one of the questions in in the comments was, should we be buying here, should I load up the truck? I wouldn't load up the truck. I, 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 you know, I would pick away. I would grab some, this is a great price, but leave some dry powder, leave, some, leave a lot of cash, because we could still have some serious pain here. Why? Because of what we said earlier, the Fed has got to raise rates. They must raise them and get them, at least close to parity with inflation, right? So you have, you, you want, you know, to net out inflation with your rates. Now, if you can get inflation down, to 5 or 6% and you can get the rates up to 3 or 4%, you're you're getting a lot closer than you are, you know, when inflation's at 8% and you know, yep. you're at 0%. So that you know, you're getting a whole lot closer there. And so if they can raise rates really quickly, which is painful, and it will be painful. And so if we keep getting these bad economic numbers and we get another 75 basis point raise, the the market I think the market will get pummeled. You know, because it, it just if it, it the, it's the Fed saying we do not care about the markets, we're not going to support the markets. All we care about is that the bond market still is, is continuous; it's not broken. Yeah, and we don't care about your your homes and your stocks because that does not affect the world that they live in, right? Mm-hmm. If the bond market breaks, well, that blows up everything, right? If the bond mic- market grinds to a halt, well. We have a major problem because Mm -hmm. we we all know that our debt to GDP is not stellar. You know, we all know that we've we've we we have so much so we have so much debt on our books now that we have no choice but to somehow inflate it away. So what we don't want to do is is cause a recession. And if the bond market blows up and you start having contagion throughout banks, financial services, insurance companies, like if if that all crumbles. We are in a world of hurt. So that's not what we want. So, you know, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to finesse this to get the rates up and then be able to stop, just stop for a minute. And when they do that, then it'll calm down. That's my guess.
1: Let's bring Bitcoin into this equation. You said something really early on in our discussion about when you were first introduced to this, you were wondering, how is this going to fit into the current system, right? And we, Mm -hmm. as Bitcoiners trolling Bitcoin Twitter every day, we view this as the escape hatch that's illuminating. But this thing is tiny, gentlemen. (laughs) Like We have to be realistic about where we're at. The market cap is less than $400 billion right now. You got bond tranches bigger than that moving every week, right? I mean, this is, yep. this is nothing in terms of size on the global scale. I agree. It's magnificent. It's, one of, it's the most compelling thing I've ever studied in my life. But mm-hmm. it's a long way from absorbing massive liquidity the way it's going to need to underpin the, the, the financial system. It's, it's weird. It's capable of doing it. Like once you study the protocol. And you see how yeah. it's scaling. It's eventually capable of doing it, but it's demonstrated, especially over the last year, it's a long ways off from, from actually doing that. Where do you see, let's say in the rest of your lifetime, Bitcoin fitting in to this extremely fucked up macro environment that needs restitution? Like, How do you actually see this playing out with Bitcoin?
0: Uh, I, I think, like I was saying earlier before, I, I, I think that it takes a long time for things to unwind. You know, um, in my experience, you you expect certain things to happen, and it just takes it takes twice as long, three times as long as you typically expect if you're watching for it. There are risks that happen that happen super fast, and you just don't have any time to react. That that is absolutely true. So the caveat is: could we 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 just see a collapse in demand for Japanese bonds? Um, You know, the yen get. Com, you know, fall into hyperinflation and have contagion across the 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 world of fiat currencies and debt. Yep, that could happen. That could absolutely happen. I don't think it will because I think that that there are just too many people who are reliant on and working in this system that it, it would take a whole lot more uh momentum for that to happen. So where do I think Bitcoin fits in? I think Bitcoin Again, I think it starts as an investment. It just starts there, and that's where that's why it, it, it interested me in the first place. Is that you have to get and, like you just said, you have to get enough of a of a market value that it it swallows certain um certain assets and it it absorbs that energy. So, what are we talking about? Well. If you if you quoting from last fall, which these numbers are a little bit off now, and I've got to get them updated from, from uh you know BIS, but the um, you know, if you figure that there's about six hundred trillion dollars of investment assets in the world, <clears throat> so Bitcoin's got to take in a few percent of that, you know? It's gotta to get to it's gotta to get to ten, twenty trillion dollars easily before it starts gaining attention as a as a a store of value and a possible reserve asset. So everybody who talks about how, well, we don't need institutional investments. We don't want the 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 big the big players to get richer off of it. Well, it's not you know, remember whose money that they're managing. We're these are we're talking about pension funds. We're talking about endowments, you know, these are not this is not, you know, a hedge fund buying um, you know, trillions of dollars worth. Hedge funds are small compared to these guys. These guys, the you know, the top five asset managers control thirty trillion dollars of wealth. You know, BlackRock, State Street. You know, um, who, who is it? Fidelity, exactly. You know, and so Vanguard, right? Yeah. Vanguard. There's, a, yeah, exactly. These guys control, these, they control $30 trillion worth of assets. And they're, those assets, BlackRock's, you know, that's a different story, but um, they're, these are small people's pensions that they're, that they're managing. And it's a big deal. And so when they, the, when Bitcoin starts absorbing their investment, and it becomes an, a separate asset class to them that's the starting point and then you'll start to see it swallow bonds because it becomes a reserve it becomes a, a, a store of value and it, it's it's anti-inflationary right so as the dollar becomes worth less and less, Bitcoin becomes worth more and more it's a better hedge do you see
2: this as almost an inevitability over a long enough time frame what? Probability would you assign Bitcoin actually reaching the heights that we're speaking of here?
0: I do. I think it's a. I well, let's put it this way. You know, uh, Greg and I talk about this a lot, but at twenty at twenty thousand Bitcoin, right? The market is uh, it's it's attaching a two percent probability that that Bitcoin goes to a million dollars. Well, I think it's a lot higher than two percent. It's it's attaching a ninety eight percent probability that it goes to zero before it goes to a million. Yeah. I think it's a lot lower than 98%. Because I know for a fact that there, there are at least 10,000 people in my feed on Twitter who would buy every single Bitcoin out there <laughs> <laughs> at $100. You yeah. Warren Buffett will
2: buy them all at $25. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He'll never get a yeah.
0: chance. So I think, I think that's, uh, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the way I look at it is there's a few ways that I look at it. I look at it on, on that and that risk reward is look, if you think that Bitcoin's going to $100,000, right? Well, you know, that's, that's a five time risk. That's a 5X t- five, five reward up. If you think that the possibility of it going to 10,000, well, so that's a, 50, it's a 50% downside. So that's a 10 to 1 risk reward if you believe it's going to 100,000.
1: Yeah, the asymmetry know? is just compelling that's, as hell.
0: It's astounding, the asymmetry, okay? Okay, so that's number one. And that's just as an investment, right? But then you start talking about it being a hedge against sovereign debt collapse. And Greg talks about this a lot. And so, you know, it's not quite like a CDS in that it doesn't trade like a CDS um, worldwide. However, if you look in isolated regions, you know, you go to Lebanon, you go to the Ukraine, you go to Venezuela, you know, you go to Cuba. Bitcoin is a hedge against the currencies that are that are are hyperinflating, right. right? So, or could hyperinflate pretty soon. So, if you if you're in the Ukraine and you're trying to get over the border with suitcases full of money, which you guys saw that that story last week, did, yeah, you know. All you had to do is is buy a ledger, put all that money on a ledger, and or you know um, whatever pick pick your uh, you know your signing device. All you had to do is buy a sign device, and this little thing, you know, this little treasure could have had that entire suitcase the, all those suitcases full of money, and you didn't even need to carry it. You just had to memorize your number, your 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 your, uh, your phrase. That's it. Your seed phrase, you could carry that across in your brain.
1: Like, think about that. Right, it's an amazing thing to really when
0: you conceptualize
1: it. It it is quite astounding. It does seem likely. This, I mean, this already has and will continue to click first in the second and third world. I mean, Argentina just reported 192 percent annualized inflation in June. I mean, the more people that understand the ease of access and escape into Bitcoin. I mean, the escape hatch is just going to light up like a Christmas tree over time. It's just hard exactly. to picture how it's not going to happen like that. That's because you're thinking about it,
0: right? But m- the, the majority of Americans in particular never have to think about this, never have to worry about it. Why? Because the dollar is going to be the last one standing and they know it. So they're not worried about the dollar. They're not worried about their currency. They're not worried about... They don't see how it is, how the... How Bitcoin can be an escape valve for your currency because they never, they've never even, they, it's, it's impossible to conceptualize going to a cafe and paying for lunch and then wanting a coffee at the end of lunch and seeing that on the blackboard, the price has changed because of inflation during lunch. Like they
1: can't even think about that. Like doesn't, they yeah. can't even ma- imagine, you know? It's crazy. Knowledge is power. We could be wrong. We're just two limited voices. But what a time to be educated on this. I, I think of this tweet that Clay Fink sent out this week. He said, and it's just, it's just true about so many things in, in finance and markets, but he says, long-term investment returns are heavily influenced by your decisions during a bear market. And nothing yep. has changed with the Bitcoin thesis. Nothing. That's right. Nothing. It, you, it makes complete sense why it is where it currently is during an, an, you know, an environment like this. Right. This is poorly understood. It's nation. It's new. It's optional. It's speculative in the minds of big money. And it's the first thing that they lose. But that doesn't change the long-term fundamentals. And I, I just can't scream it loud enough from the mountaintops. And I know Josh feels the same way. If you're a wage earner like us, this thing is broadside, shoot the arrow straight into the heart of this buck, go home, harvest the meat, and you may be able to feed your family for a long time if you're piling into this thing right now because this yeah. is an opportunity I didn't expect we were going to have. And
2: you should stop looking at the price. You're just stressing yourself out if you're just staring at that all day long. You're just going to give yourself yeah. a heart attack. You know, If you bought at 60 grand, just chill. Just chill. Love your time
0: preference. Yep, yeah, exactly. This is long, long term.
1: Free up your cash flow too. This is a good time to remind myself included, all of us, free up your freaking cash flow. Make sure you're doing something for a living and spending an amount that enables you to invest every month of every year Um, because you never know when these opportunities are coming. And like you said, who knows where the floor is on this thing? There is no Fed put in the land of Bitcoin and it's a wonderful thing. That's right. It's crazy,
2: harrowing, and exciting all at the same time. Amen. One thing I like to ask people that I really respect, obviously, a good book. You have a good uh, recommendation for us?
0: Oh man, I cannot uh, recommend Jeff Booth's uh, "The Price of Tomorrow." More, Amen to that one. That's I a cannot great book. Recommend higher than and like that is. If you're wondering about the the things we were talking about earlier in this conversation, and how the the system is really broken. And how Bitcoin can fix it, that's the book. So 100 percent
1: And then read the greatest game after it. That's kind of his Bitcoin yeah. addendum to the excellent. the book. Yes. Yeah.
2: Excellent. And James, your uh, price prediction for Bitcoin in 2030? 2030? <laughs> seven years
0: from now. Seven I years. Think, seven years. Shot I, in the dark. I, I honestly think that we're gonna be we're gonna be somewhere bumping around a million dollars so ooh, that'll get the that, loins tingling I could, I could i could be completely wrong you know i'm it, with a caveat do your own research but yeah you know um just looking at what's going on in the world the debt cycle uh the amount of of liquidity we're going to have to inject back into the markets when when we grind to a halt here um it's just it's it's compelling it's a yeah. compelling asset
1: Yes, it is. Plug yourself and your newsletter here at the end.
0: (laughs) So, uh, well, first of all, the looking glass, uh, education platform, you can find that on my Twitter handle. And that's something that, uh, that I've been working on. Um, you know, I, I can't really say that I've done that much with it. I'm, I'm one of the older, um, uh, guys, Greg and I, Help with uh, with advisory more than more than anything. We write articles, you know, um, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. But the the guys who are really working on it, uh, Dazbia, Jason Sansoni, um, and uh, and we've got Dahlia Platt is in there now. Um, you know these guys uh, and Seb Bunny. Those guys are the they're the heart of this this platform. They've done so much work on it. And it's incredible. It's it's a place for you to learn about money in a modular format where it's kind of like taking a course. It's so straightforward. It's it's um it's simple, but it's smart, and I yeah. love that. And mm-hmm. it, and so if you if you're wondering about money, the monetary system, the evolution of money, how it really works, and 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 why Bitcoin's the answer, you know, it's the it's the kind of thing you go down that that rabbit hole, and then you realize, ah, I get it, and It'll point you in a bunch of different directions um, for you to do deeper research if you want. Um, my my newsletter is on there as well. Uh, the newsletter is The Informationist, and that's where I take one complicated concept each week and simplify it in, in kind of layman terms. And I did that because I know that my industry, the, especially institutional investing and, and the financial world, is so opaque, you hear us throw around these words, you know, these phrases, yield curve control, and the Fed put, and you know, the repos and euro dollars and all this stuff. And you see it in all these tweets. And you're and I know there's so many people who are following these things, and I get these repeated questions that like, Well, what does that mean? Like, what exactly does that mean? And the the concepts aren't that difficult. It's just they're hidden by all this language and yep. And you, a couple of concepts that you've got to understand first in order to get there. It's not that hard, but we're not taught it. And so I'm trying to take that, you know, uh, get you get you behind the the kind of the, the wizard's curtain to see exactly what is going on at, out there, and empower people to understand it better. And I think that that will help anyone make more intel- intelligent decisions about their finances, their investments, and their future. So that's kind of, and it's free. It comes out every Sunday. So and you, you can find it in my Twitter handle.
1: Thanks for your time. Go snuggle that bulldog.
0: Yeah. You too, <laughs> fellas. I know. She's got her bone over there. She's ready. She's ready for dinner.
1: We're, we're going to call her arbitrage. She's Arbitrage arbitrage, dogs. <laughs> You're arbitrage.
2: That's
0: perfect. James, thanks. It's been a pleasure. All right. See you, fellas. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, uh, Josh and Dan, and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk in soon.
1: Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC, and our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.